the 69th Psalm, the 28th verse, uses very similar language to what Jesus said there in Revelation 3, when it says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living, talking about the wicked, and not be written with the righteous. Well, that tells you a couple things, doesn't it? It's the book of the living, and being written in the book of the living must equate to being written with the righteous, which means it isn't the book of everybody that's alive on the planet. It's the book of those, and I know this phrase bothers some people. It doesn't bother anybody in this building, I don't think, but it bothers some people that use it in an unbiblical way, I'm sorry to say. They must have been alive to God. You don't have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit to be alive to God. You have to be in a relationship with God to be alive to God. It isn't the full immersion in the Holy Spirit that makes you alive to God. It's God's connection with your heart. If that umbilical cord between God's heart and your heart connects, you're alive to God because the nutrients of His Word and that relationship are flowing there. That happens before you receive the Holy Spirit. These are Old Testament passages. These are not New Covenant passages. So there were people in the book of the living, and it tells you who they were. Those that are in the book of the living are the righteous. So if you're written in that book, you're written with the righteous. That goes perfectly in line with what Moses said, by the way, because he said, don't blot me out of your book. And being blotted out of your book, God said, is if you sin against him. If you sin against him, you're not righteous. By the way, that goes right in line with something else that I'm not going to wait and do at night, but I'll at least tap the edges of it. And that is this exceptionally unbiblical use of this statement that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags to mean that no human being has ever done anything that's righteous. It's all just filthy rags to God. That's not even what the context is talking about. That's used by some views to protect their idea of total depravity. But that's not even what that's talking about. That's talking about that generation of Israelites. We're putting on false righteousness and acting like they're righteous, but it was just filthy rags to God. And the reason I know that's true is God calls people righteous in the Old Testament. He's talking about the fact that there were a whole bunch of Israelites and all their righteousness, it's speaking as the nation, is just filthy rags because they're just putting on. They're just putting on. It's just surface level or it's not real at all in any way. That's not the same thing as people that are called righteous. You notice the scripture we just read. He said, blot them out of the book. They won't be written with the righteous. If there were no righteous people, because it was all just filthy rags, there'd be nobody in the book. Pretty simple, huh? I give you a whole avalanche of scriptures to back that up. But the fact of the matter is there were righteous people. But we have to define what righteousness means because righteousness under the old covenant is not at the level of the righteousness of Christ under the new covenant. There are levels of righteousness. If you're doing everything that God asks of you in your day, you're living in a righteous way. That's why Paul could say in Philippians, as touching the law, I was blameless. That's righteous. If you're not doing anything to break God's law, you are righteous. Now, does that mean you're perfect? No, because there are still things in you that need to be overcome. But at the level of what God's asking of you, if you're being obedient to it, in God's eyes, you're righteous. It doesn't mean you're fully, in every sense, righteous, but it does mean you're righteous regarding the measure that you've been asked to live up to. I believe Daniel lived a righteous life. I cannot imagine Daniel, when you look at his life, did anything, especially as his life progressed and he got older. As you see him go into Babylon, from that point on, I'm not sure what you'd pick out. He was a mighty man of God, certainly lived a righteous life, and it was his righteousness. God did not make him go in the den of lions. God did not make the three Hebrew children stay on their feet, lock their knees so they couldn't bow in some kind of uh, micromanagerial control mechanism. They chose to stand for God 
And God honored them for choosing to stand for him. They stood in the midst of filth and uncleanness and kept their garments clean and kept their relationship with God pure. And that will keep you in the book for sure. You can be sure somebody has kept their integrity. As bad as Job's condition was, as many times as Job probably wished for death, and a couple times he audibly said he wished for death. If you're listening close to his statements, he said it'd be better if I'd never been born, and he was in misery. He still did not break his relationship with God. He still didn't lose his faith in God. And that kept him in that righteous state of relationship with God, even when his heart was struggling. Again, it wasn't at the level of the righteousness of Christ. There are different levels of righteousness just as there are different levels of perfection. You could say of Noah, Daniel, and Job, they were perfect in their generations or days, but that perfection was based on perfectly obeying the requirements of their dispensation. The requirements of our dispensation are higher in terms of the level of righteousness God is seeking, not lower. And by the way, there's another scripture that proves that point about everyone's righteousness just being filthy rags. You think Noah, Daniel, and Job, all their righteousness was just filthy rags. When God himself said that they could deliver their own souls by their righteousness, not by his, by their righteousness. So that's another story. I'm getting into some controversial doctrines I'm not trying to get into tonight, all right? Let's come back to the resurrection. That's controversial enough. Daniel 12.1 is another example. Talking about how Michael will stand up at that time. Shall stand up Michael, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered. Who's going to be delivered? What's the last phrase? Which people? Everyone that shall be found written in the book. In the book. Delivered from what? Well, in their case, delivered from the condition that very likely is referring to Armageddon. Delivered from that great, terrible time of Jacob's trouble. But even if they're killed, they'll be delivered. Because if your name's written in the book, you'll live again. That's the point of getting your name written in the book. Notice again, this is in the Old Testament. This is not talking about something that happened after the day of Pentecost, which means there's a lot of people whose names are written in the book. There's not a single scripture that says the requirements to get in the book changed at some point. It's the same requirement it was to begin with. If you're in a relationship with God and you die in a right relationship with God, your name will be in that book. And by merit of your name being in that book, you will have a resurrection. Going back to Malachi 3, 16 to 18. Then they that fear the Lord spake one to another. This is describing a very difficult time in the history of God's people. This is a very good scripture to apply to our present day. There is no more important time that we as the people of God need to be speaking to one another. That just means saying hello, and every time I see Brother Isaiah, I want to give him a hug. That's good. That's good. That shows our love and our tenderness towards one another, but that's not what this is talking about. That means speaking to one another to encourage each other, to build each other up. Say, I'm taking a stand for God, and I'm behind you, locking your shoulders together. That's another thing that hit my mind. We were talking to the youth in that youth Bible saying, it just hit me like a sledgehammer, talking about the three young Hebrew men standing there. Each one of them had to decide to take a stand. And it wasn't just for them. It was for the man beside them. Because if I'm standing there and you're wavering and I step up beside you and all three of us are standing there, here's three right here. If Brother Andy, Brother Isaiah and I are all standing in a line and Brother Isaiah, forgive me, he probably wouldn't be. Brother Isaiah is wavering in his mind. He's thinking, I don't know, I think I might take a knee because I don't want to go into that furnace. And I stand up and I'm steady as a rock standing by his side. And I said, I'm going to stand. And it's not just that I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand with you. And then Brother Isaiah looks to me and he says, and I'll stand with you. And then Andy looks over and he says, and I'll stand with you. See, we're anchoring each other. 
It's not just my faith alone now. It's our faith. And it's much stronger when we anchor it to each other. Too hard for the enemy to push us over. Too much weight in our commitment. So they that feared the Lord spoke often one to another. It's a good reason to come to church every time the doors are open, isn't it? I hope there's a good reason because there's a good flow of the Spirit and a good flow of the Word going on in our assembly. I feel like there is. I hope that's a good reason to come every time you can. But we need to speak often one to another, encourage each other with our preaching and teaching and testimonies, singing songs and other things we do that are communicating with each other in different ways. Because this is a dark day and we need to know we have other people on our side. We're not alone in this. Taking a stand for the things we need to stand for. And they were speaking often one to another. And isn't this interesting? And the Lord hearkened. Think about that for a minute. They weren't speaking to him. I'm sure they were praying, but that's not the object. The object is they were talking to each other. They that feared the Lord. Now, here's, here's the ones that will take a stand and encourage others to take a stand. Because you fear the Lord, that's why you're taking a stand. I'd rather please God than man. I'm more afraid of God than I am of any man. And by the way, it is better to grow from that to something that is much stronger than fear. You know how I know it's more strong than fear? Someone just named it. Because it casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear, which means you don't even have to fear God anymore in a sense of terror if you perfectly love Him because there's nothing to be afraid of. If you're returning God's love the way He's expressing it to you, you don't have anything to be afraid of. You cannot be harmed and you won't fall under His judgment. But the key ingredient here is they that feared the Lord spoke often one to another. The Lord hearkened. So He was listening to them speaking to each other they weren't even talking to him. They were talking to each other, saying, come on, let's take a stand. We love God, and we're not going to be bowed by this terrible pressure of the culture around us, this idolatry, and it is going on. It's idolatry in our day. Let me tell you what the greatest object of idolatry is in our present day. You think it's the Hindu gods, Buddha? What do you think the greatest object of idolatry is in this present world? Self. I love that I heard a whole bunch of different voices say the exact same word. Self. The greatest object of idolatry is right here. It's not Daniel Bear. I hope nobody is worshiping him. But the greatest object of idolatry is you. You are the greatest object of your own idolatry. When your desires eclipse God's desires, you've made an idol out of yourself. And this world is all about making an idol out of self. Whatever feeling you get, and usually it's about feelings, you know, it's not about intellectual arguments, it's about emotional feelings. That's why when you corner somebody that is a serious liberal, almost never is it intelligent arguments that they respond with. It's emotionalism and name-calling and trying to create some kind of a false dichotomy that because you're standing for this, you must be evil or hateful towards people or whatever. No, I love God too much not to stand for it. And I love you, by the way, too much not to stand for what I stand for because you're going to die in your sins if you don't stop doing what you're doing. That's our call, see? So we speak one to another, and as we're speaking one to another, this incredible state of encouragement, the Lord hearkened and heard it. In other words, the Lord could hear His people. Come on, let's take a stand. Come on, let's take a stand. I'm not going to let this world turn me. I'm not going to let anything steal my faith. I'm not going to let anything steal my love for God. Let me get my arms around you. I can see you're struggling. Come on, we can stand together. And the Lord heard that that he heard it and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Well, that just gave you two qualifications to be in the book of remembrance. 
if you fear the Lord and you think on his name. Now, that doesn't mean you got to be thinking every minute of the day on his name, you know. Like somebody said one time, they were trying to pray without ceasing, so they never stopped talking the whole day long. They kept walking around. I've watched someone do it. I watched someone try it. They wore themselves out, and they weren't making any progress. At some point, it's mindless. Praying without ceasing is being in a spirit of prayer all the time. It's like having your friend at your side. Imagine walking around with your best friend or your spouse. Like one of my favorite places to walk with my spouse is we might go on a trail somewhere, walking through the woods or something. So we're walking through the woods, and I see something beautiful. It's automatic. Destiny, look at that. Do you see this? We're just carrying on a conversation. I don't have to think about, oh, I need to talk to my wife more. I want to talk to my wife. I can't wait to share with her what I'm seeing, what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing, and vice versa. That's what it is to pray without ceasing. You're just walking around where God's that close to you that anytime you have something to share, you don't have to get down on your knees or make some ritual out of it. You just start talking to the Lord wherever you're at. They that feared the Lord were the ones that were written in that book. Those that thought upon His name. That means God's on their mind. They respect Him. They have an awe of God. And He's on their mind all the time. What does God think about this? What does God feel about this? I want to please God. I want God to be happy with me. One of the best scriptures in the whole Bible about the Word of God is that passage in the 19th Psalm. I think Brother Jim Fairhurst was quoting it here just slightly part of it, where it talks about how it's comparing it to the sun and the way you relate to the light of the sun going around the earth, you know, the earth circumnavigating the sun, but all those things it's comparing to the Word of God going forth and how God's will and His Spirit and His activity is working in the earth. And then it goes into that list of all those great qualities about the Word of God, His purity and other things. And then the very end, it's not at all out of place. It sounds like it's changing the subject. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, the end of the 19th Psalm, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. He just got done talking about how mighty the Word of God is and how it has all this power. Now, Lord, let that Word have power over my life. So I'm thinking about your Word. I'm thinking about your ways. You're on my mind all the time. I want to please you, Lord. Let my words and my thoughts be pleasing to you. If that's what you're thinking about, you can be sure God's going to want you to be in His book. And so that's what's at the heart of this, is the idea that you can be in the book of God by merit of the fact that, look what it's talking about. You fear the Lord, and you think on His name. If you fear the Lord, it's because you know the Lord. And thinking on His name is a response to the fact that you know enough about Him that your mind is meditating on Him and on His Word and other things. So these are the things that get you in the book of life. Let's go back to that Luke 10.20 now for a minute that I mentioned earlier. If I was going in order, I'd go there. There are other passages that talk about the book of life in the New Testament. Then I'd probably jump to Revelation. Luke 10.20, where he says, notwithstanding, how does he say that? In this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Is that how it words? Rather rejoice. Rather rejoice. Yeah, don't let me get any words wrong. Rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Their names are written in heaven. That wouldn't have surprised them. They knew the Old Testament. They knew about God's book of remembrance. They knew about God's book of the living that the righteous were in. They knew about the book that Moses was talking about. We know about it too. This is the very simplest thing to make the point for what it takes to get a resurrection. If you're in the book, you're going to have a resurrection. That's the whole point. That's the point of being in it. It's the book of life because it's the book of those who are going to receive life. And so what is the process of getting in the book? The process is being in a relationship with God, being in a covenant with God. And once you enter into that relationship, your name is in the book. 
Now, there's things that can take your name out of the book, and there's things that can get your name graven deeper into the book. The longer you go on and go through the process of the things that need to happen in your life to take you on to full salvation, the deeper your name gets grooved into that book. But the more lightly you take the things of God, the easier it'll be to blot your name out of the book. We want our name in the book. Another passage is Revelation 17, 8. And there's one that probably we better not leave out, though there's other ones in Revelation, maybe the 20th chapter. 17, 8 is a good one, where it's talking about those who were written in the book. How does it say it? From the foundation of the world? You have it in front of you, Brother Andy? Written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. It's talking about the individuals who received the mark of the beast were not among those who were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. That's a simpler point, too, than sometimes some people make it theologically. Some people believe the whole book was written at the foundation of the world. All the names are already in it. That's not what this is saying at all. The book started to be written at that point. At the foundation of the world, when God first created man, their names were in the book. They were in a right relationship with God to begin with, Adam and Eve. Now, this is one of the controversial things you could probably bring up if I leave enough time for questions, if I stop talking here soon. Are Adam and Eve still in the book? There's a lot of debate about that. I wouldn't say I've had any heated debate because I don't have a real strong opinion on that. Some people get very, and don't do this, all right? Don't do this. It's nothing but a divisive spirit and it's blind dogmatism. Sometimes people get very uptight about making points that cannot possibly be proven. All they have is a theory and they get really wound tight over a theory. So some people get really wound tight over what happened to Adam and Eve. Are Adam and Eve forever judged because of what they did? Or do they have the hope for resurrection? I can give you reasons for both, but I'm just going to take the kinder gentler side, all right? You do know God covered them with the skins of those animals. And covering some with the skins of those animals pictured covering sin. There'd be no point in covering it if they were eternally judged and there was no hope for them from that point forward. And then you know that Abel obviously knew what to do in terms of offering a sacrifice. He had to have learned it from somewhere. So all those things give you some clues. Now you kind of know which side I lean towards, don't you? I didn't even give you the other evidence. But the point is, I'd like to think Adam and Eve would have the hope for resurrection. That doesn't mean they're going to have eternal life. It'll be dependent on what happens when they come up in the resurrection, which is the whole point. You come up in that resurrection, if you haven't gone on to perfection, which they clearly didn't, you're going to have to go on if they were to come up. But the book of life written from the foundation of the world wasn't all written from the foundation of the world. It began to be written at the foundation of the world. That's when the writing of the book began. You know why? There wasn't anybody to be in it until God created people. The book of life is the book of human beings who are going to have the hope of life. Adam and Eve would have been in that book in a different way than you and I now if they were in it. Because at that point, it wasn't a resurrection. It was, these are the people that are alive to me and they're going to live forever. Wouldn't that be nice if that's how you started? You started already with eternal life? But maybe that's the problem. They started with a silver spoon in their mouth and they didn't realize just how valuable what they'd been given was and they lost it. They ended up with that cherubim in front of the garden with that sword going in all directions, that flaming sword, to bar them from entry, to get back to the tree of life. And you and I are going to have to, metaphorically, spiritually, we're going to have to pass right back through that flaming sword to get back into that place that they lost. That's where fire baptism comes into the process. We're going to have to pass right back through the flaming sword to go back into that Edenic state. But we won't get into the controversial element of Adam and Eve any more than that. But the bottom line is, the book of life written from the foundation of the world, that's when it started to be written. It's still being written right now. The book of life is not a finished book. God did not pre-select. Forgive me if anyone in here believes this, because I'm not trying to push your buttons. But I strongly believe God did not pre-select everybody that's going to be saved and everybody that's going to be destroyed. 
God knows things that are coming and that are going to happen, and He knows every possibility, and He's prepared for every eventuality. But I don't believe God pre-selected all the ones who are going to be saved and all the ones who are going to be damned and destroyed. I think God has allowed human choice to be part of that process. And it takes, forgive me for being this blunt, but it takes a far greater God to allow human choice and still accomplish his purpose than to engineer it like a robotic engineer that is puppet mastering every little moment action in creation. That does not take skill, it just takes power. A being who has almost no skill but has power could run this thing like a puppet master. It takes tremendous skill to be able to still get his will done and let man have free choice. And I think that gives greater credibility to God and greater honor to his name to think that he's not controlling everything micromanagerially, but he is allowing man to make choices and still within the span of that possibility, God is getting his will done. That's a greater God than some God that is constantly controlling all the minutia of creation. That said, again, I'm banging along on a number of different doctrines that I wasn't planning on talking on, but the book of life began to be written at that time, and it's still being written. That book is open right now. If somebody were to run down to this altar who's never met the Lord before here tonight, a new name could get written down in glory. Now, we sometimes associate that with receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it's earlier than that. When someone turns their heart over to God, their name is in God's heart and His mind. When you give your heart to the Lord, your name is written in His mind. You're His now. When God purchased you by the blood of Jesus, you became his possession. You're his. If you're his, surely you'll have a resurrection. By what? By the fact that he purchased you. You belong to him now. Coming back to these statements, I didn't think we'd just talk on the book of life tonight. I wouldn't plan on just doing that. But I'll at least give you one more verse on it. But this verse, before we finish it out, this 17th chapter of Revelation, the 8th verse, where it says they were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. God started writing. God started writing. That book started all the way back at the foundation of the world. That book is going to still be written all the way into the 8,000th year period, all the way into the white throne judgment. You know how I know that? For two reasons. The 20th chapter of Revelation, the 11th verse. Revelation 20, verse 11. He said, I saw a great white throne. That's why we call this period the great white throne judgment period, because this is a period of judgment, and that judgment is coming from this great white throne. The throne represents the authority of God, obviously, and his power. The fact that it's a great white throne represents the fact that that judgment is pure and perfect. And the expectation, by the way, is perfection. That white throne, you're going to have to measure up to that level of perfection that that judgment is set at. So I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. Now, we've had a couple of ways of interpreting these books. I'll give you two ways. Some have said those are the books that Brother Isaiah's got seen on his lap right now, the books of the Bible. The Bible is not just a book. It's a book of books. There's a whole bunch of books right there. It's not just two, the Old and New Covenant. And the Hebrew Bible divides them up in a different way than we do because they combine things in ways we don't, like Chronicles and Kings and so on. But there are a whole series of books inside this book. That certainly could be the books, but I wouldn't be surprised if the books he's talking about as the books are this book and the book of your life, because that's what has to be compared. It's going to be the book and the book of your life. And then he opens up the book of life which there would be no reason whatsoever to do unless there were people coming up in this resurrection who were in it. This is one of the places that a lot of nominal Christendom has totally missed regarding the resurrection. All you have to do is take the 20th chapter of Revelation and you'll see the two resurrections and how they fit and what their purposes are, but people don't do it. 
They already have this idea in their head about how the resurrections work. And I had somebody say this to me one time. I don't believe Revelation 20 is in order. You've got to move it all around to get it in the right order. Yeah, you do if you believe what you believe. If you believe what you believe, you've got to move it around in all kinds of different directions. But if you just take it for what it says, it just goes step by step right through and tells you the order of what things are going to happen. And when you get down to this resurrection, you realize the first resurrection already occurred a thousand years earlier in the first part of the chapter. He even told you it was the first resurrection. If there was any doubt, talked about these great powers that were standing there. That's the bride of Jesus Christ that he's describing in the earlier part of Revelation 20. And he said, and this was the first resurrection. The rest of the dead live not again for a thousand years. The rest of the dead is everybody but the bride company. The bride company comes up in the first resurrection in the beginning of the chapter. The rest of the dead, anybody that did not complete the work of salvation in this life, Anybody who did not die a complete overcomer is part of the rest of the dead. Because if someone dies as a full overcomer, he's part of the bride company. At least if you die before the marriage supper, after that, it's a different story. You'll be in a different company. But the rest of the dead live not again for a thousand years. But back down here, he opens up not only the books, but he opens up the book of life. So the books were opened, which again is either the Bible being opened or it's the Bible and the book of your life. But then he opens up the book of life. Because that's where these individuals are recorded who are coming up in this resurrection is in the book of life. And then the dead are judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. That's why it's hard to determine. You could say either one's true because the dead are going to be judged out of things written in these books according to their works. But it'd be true of the book of your life too. You take the book of your life and you take the book of God and you put them together, you're going to be judged according to your works. And you could go on to the rest of that in its description. But notice that the book of life is opened at this point. This book of life that's opened up in the 20th chapter is not some new different book. It's the same book of life that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Same book of life Moses talked about. Same book of life that was talked about in the Psalms. Same book of life that was talked about by Daniel. Same book of life that was talked about by Malachi. Same book that Jesus was talking about, if you realize he's talking about a book, when he told his disciples, your names are written in heaven. They already were in the book. It's not the Holy Spirit baptism that put them in the book. It was their relationship with God that put them in the book. What Holy Spirit baptism will do is allow you to grow and develop so that you never get blotted out of the book. The more of the Holy Spirit is working in your life, the less likely it is you could ever get blotted out of the book. So thank God our names are written in heaven. Like Hebrews 12 says, as we've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. And then the God, the judge of all and the spirits of just men made perfect. Notice there's two different things going on there. There's those whose names have been written in heaven. And then there's the spirits of just men made perfect. Once you get your name in the book, if you're a just man, just is one of those synonyms that really you could make it simpler. Almost every single time you see the word just or justified in the Bible, it's just the word for righteous. So just is righteous. Justified is to be made righteous. So it's a spirit of righteous men made perfect. Because you got to be a righteous man if you're going to be made perfect. That sounds backwards, doesn't it? I told you there's levels of righteousness. You got to be living as much in right relationship with God as you can if you're going to be made perfect. Those are the type of people that will be made perfect. The people that are living as close to God as they can. God will keep working in them as they're working out their salvation. And they work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And God worketh in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. And they're made perfect. 
They're seeking righteousness. They're doing righteousness. And while they're laboring to enter into their rest and to be fully righteous, God is recreating something in them. So eventually that spiritual circumcision I was talking about will be fully complete and they'll have a heart of flesh and no more heart of stone. My Lord, won't that be something? Now that's the hope of a higher level of the resurrection. We're talking about the hope of the general resurrection. That's not what should be our first target. As much as I've been talking about it, it isn't what should be our first target. But many of the people that have walked this earth, that's the resurrection they're going to come up in. I mean, people that have encountered God and have entered into a relationship with Him. That's the resurrection they'll come up in. These folks that never understood the Pentecostal experience, that's the resurrection they'll come up in, the second resurrection. People that didn't have all the truth. It isn't just having all the truth that gets you a resurrection, because who would get it then? We're not right on every single thing. We're still striving to have all the truth. It's not all the things. You don't have to hit all the marks to get a resurrection. You have to hit the mark of relationship and stay in that relationship and you'll get a resurrection. Now, if you want to get a first resurrection, you've got a much higher mark to hit, which is what Paul was talking about a little later in that chapter in Philippians that I was quoting when he was talking about his touch of the law is blameless. When he said, I have not yet attained the resurrection of the dead, I think that's one of the most powerful statements that show you the difference between those two resurrections. When he said, I am striving, I'm pressing towards that mark. I have not yet attained. Not as though I had already attained. I had this precious minister, and I hope he's still listening to our messages because I hope he hears me right now. I love him dearly. That's a couple states east of us that has touched this body a few times, and I felt such a good spirit from him. And I'm hoping he's hearing me right now. He really got stuck on this passage. Some of our brethren were talking to him about perfection and going on to perfection. And we went to this passage and I said, Paul hadn't attained something yet. He could not get it through his mind that there was something higher yet to attain to than what his concept of the resurrection was. Paul said here, not as though I'd already attained. This is Paul. And you know what this precious brother said to me? He could not see it. I pray to God that God opens his eyes on it because it's so simple. He said, Paul would just be humble. He said, I haven't attained when he really had attained. What do you mean he was being humble? He said, well, Paul had obviously attained, but he didn't want to sound proud. Then he lied. He said, not as though I'd already attained. Attained what? Well, we already know what it takes to get a second. Well, maybe we do. I hope we do. After all the time we've been talking about it, we may talk about it some more. I hope we know what it takes to get a second resurrection. You got to be in a right relationship with God to get a general resurrection. Paul obviously was in a right relationship with God. And yet he's saying, I haven't already attained. And he tells you what it takes to attain in the very next statement. Either we're already perfect, meaning the only way to attain the resurrection I'm striving for is to be perfect. But I follow after, which would be pointless as well if he was just being humble. What are you following if you already got there? I follow after. I'm still running this race that I might apprehend that for which I was apprehended. As much as we've been talking about the second resurrection, you and I were not apprehended to come up in the second resurrection. You and I were apprehended to have an opportunity for the first resurrection. We may come up in the second resurrection if we don't make the first resurrection, but God apprehended us for the first resurrection. He's given us a vision of the first resurrection, of the bride company and these other precious truths. That's what he apprehended us for. That means he went out and called us, got us, brought us in, so we could hear the message of perfection and the bride message to apprehend us for something more, praise His holy name. As glorious as a resurrection is, there's a higher resurrection. That's why he goes on to say after that, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. 
This is what he focused on. He didn't want to talk about the last verse. His precious brother said, Paul just wasn't counting himself that way. In other words, I don't consider myself that great. He had not reached it. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things that are before, those things he hadn't attained yet, those things he was trying to attain, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul was doing. He was leaving the past behind and stretching out for the future, pressing toward the mark for the prize of that high calling of God in Christ Jesus that is higher than that second resurrection we've been talking about. The last thing Paul wrote, I believe, in terms of the chronology of his writing was 2 Timothy. And one of the last things he said in 2 Timothy, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, he's telling you right now, we reached it. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, that righteous judge, will give to me in that day. And not to me only. Now, this is a higher resurrection. This isn't the second resurrection we've been talking about. This is the first resurrection. A crown of righteousness is given to the bride members. Not to me only, but unto all them that love is appearing. You know when he's coming back next to get his bride. There's a little clue to what that resurrection is. The ones that are going to love his appearing most are the bride members waiting for him to come back and get them. When he comes and you're waiting, Lord, I'm here. Now I'm shifting into a higher hope before we close out here. We've been talking about the second resurrection and there's more we could say about it. But there's a higher hope than that for us. There's a crown of righteousness that's laid up that we could receive. And we could be among those that love is appearing. Can you imagine what that'd be like when you've experienced what Paul was describing? Could you imagine being able to say and mean, I have, past tense, fought a good fight? Well, that by itself may not mean that you're finished with the fight. That just means I fought a good one and here comes another one. But once you start getting the other pieces, I have finished my course. The race is done. Could you imagine breaking the tape of the finish line of that race? What would it feel like? I told you, I think here not long ago, one of the Bible says in Mansfield, we got in a really good discussion about if you went on to perfection and became a full overcomer, if you would know it right then. Paul knew it. Something changed. Something shifted and Paul knew the race is done. I've passed the finish line and I'm ready to be offered up. He said the verses before that. Time of my departure is at hand. He knew the time of his departure was at hand because he passed the finish line. He passed the finish line. He'd done all the work that God had asked him to do. He'd finished his course, fought a good fight. And in the midst of all that travail that he had to go through, he kept the faith. The very thing that gave him the hope of a resurrection to begin with, the faith. He kept it and he went on to perfection and received an even higher place and a higher resurrection. Praise the holy God of heaven.